This is the Mike Garrigan Podcast. Welcome to episode 3 of 12 in the 2018 podcast series from MikeGarrigan.com. My name is Mike Garrigan. What follows is a reflection on my experience as a second-year law student, or 2L, as we're called in law school land. Uh, the past few months marked my second semester as a 2L and my fourth semester overall as a law student. Uh, so, disclaimer number one, everything in this episode is my own opinion and not the opinion of Wake Forest University or Wake Law, where I'm a student. Disclaimer number two, while this episode contains a discussion of some general legal matters, nothing in it is intended to be nor should be construed as legal advice. So, with that out, out of the way, uh, and before I talk about uh, my 2L experience. I want to let's talk about Pink Floyd for a second. Um, so, in 1972, Pink Floyd released an album called "Obscured by Clouds," and it was a lesser-known soundtrack uh, for the Barbette Schroeder film *La Vallée*. And the movie um, involved a group of French explorers who stumbled upon a tribe of indigenous people who had very little, if any contact uh, with the outside 20th century world. And the explorers, uh, after a discussion, they, they decided to search for a valley, a paradise on earth. And the area where they are searching for this place is marked on a map with the notation obscured by cloud. La Vallée itself is a relatively unknown film and so is its Pink Floyd soundtrack, and the soundtrack falls squarely between Floyd's first breakthrough album, Metal, and the essential recording, Dark Side of the Moon. So, for, for me, the second year of law school was a lot like Obscured by Clouds. And first, it's nestled between these two monolithic experiences. You know, the first year of law school is this novel sea change event that's full of new ideas and new ways of thinking and these just epic study sessions, you know, just big things. Uh, and it, for me, it's a lot like what I experienced when I hear the album Metal. Uh, but 3L, I haven't been there yet, but it seems like it will end with a sort of memorable transition into this new world, similar to what I experienced with Dark Side of the Moon. These are, you know, my experiences. But anyway, 2L has this sort of non-essential individualized experience to it that, well, it's probably going to be easy for me to overlook in the grand scheme of things when I look back on it. So, um, you know, even the, the 1993 box set Shine On, which was awesome, uh, it omitted Obscured by Clouds from its collection in favor of, of some of the more obscure Sid Barrett uh, stuff. So Obscured by Clouds departs from Floyd's usual creative process in a number of ways. And, and first of all, the album was recorded very quickly, uh, as opposed to the lengthy sessions that produced Metal and Dark Side of the Moon. And on, on Obscured by Clouds, we get to hear the band cut loose a bit and try some different things. 
uh, 2L for me, and particularly the second semester, was a lot like that. Um, I was able to branch out beyond my professional interest into things which I just had <clears throat> intellectual curiosity in. Um, and secondly, Obscured by Clouds features sort of individualized contributions from the members of the band. And 2L for me was largely an individualized experience where, you know, student chooses his own path, his own adventure, so to speak. So, you know, I don't get this sense from Obscured by Clouds, but rather from Dark Side of the Moon. But uh, a controlling question I've had uh, since finishing the second year is, you know, have two years really gone by? I guess so. Um, you know, I guess law school is a collection of long days and short years, kind of like how they describe parenting. But, you know, the days were hard, too. And it, it's at one point, I felt like I felt during that 18-mile mark in a marathon where you just get all rubbery and tired, but you just keep moving forward anyway somehow. But all that being said, I greatly enjoyed the courses I took this past semester. Um, you know, as I mentioned, 2L is a highly individualized experience. So what one person takes or studies, another may not. Um, still, some of the some of the scheduling worked out to where I had a few of the same people in maybe three of my classes, but never the same people in all of my classes. It was kind of cool. Um, but this past semester, I took all kinds of different stuff. I took uh, intellectual property, uh, a class called criminal litigation drafting, um, a seminar course called sustainable corporations, a substantive course, uh, securities regulation, and another substantive course, um, federal income tax. Uh, I also did an independent study. Um, and with my, my journal credits, that brought me up to a whopping 17 credit hours. And that was a hefty semester. But None of, the, the, none of these courses were required, um, and none of them appear on the, the North Carolina bar exam, as far as I know, um, at least not now. So intellectual property uh, is the study of, I guess you could call it, when we talk about property, we talk about like a bundle of sticks, a bundle of rights that you get that are associated with uh, an intangible possession, um, like commercial source identification, like creativity, like usefulness, and some aspects of competition. And source identification is protected by trademark law. Uh, creative expression is protected by copyright law. Usefulness is protected by patent law. And competition is protected by trade secret law. So this course is what they call a survey course, meaning it takes, you know, a basic 10,000-foot view of the four areas and then sort of dips a toe into some of the more common substantive and procedural aspects of those areas. Um, you know, a substantive issue in copyright law, for example, uh, is how, how the five exclusive rights, which attach to a copyright, uh, have been reduced by the acceleration of digital technology. You know, and these rights are, of course, Reproduction, making derivative works, distribution, public performance, and public display. But, you know, a procedural issue, on the other hand, uh, would be something like in patent law where 
you know, some inventor wants to file a patent and there's an entire what's called prosecution process where the application has to be filed in a certain way uh, so that a person having ordinary skill in what's called the art <laughs> is able to duplicate it without uh, too much of a burden or experimentation. So this class had a ton of reading. I mean, the textbook was something like 800 pages and we read all of it. Like there was not anything we 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 didn't skip any of it so it covered a lot of ground and um i think if i break it down i think we spent six weeks on trademarks four weeks on copyrights four weeks on patents and like a week on trade secrets but i i enjoyed being able to apply my experiences in music to copyright and trademark and trade secret issues uh that was it was the first time in law school i've been able to really draw on some of my unique experiences and apply them. You know, we got to read the Napster case and the Grokster case, and those decisions have have shaped the nature of liability and musician royalty recovery for the past decade. And I've been pretty much in one way or another on the front line of that issue. Um, but on the other hand, it, you know, the course was so broad that you know, I literally knew nothing about patents before this course, and I feel now I have at least a vocabulary to talk about, you know, why you would patent something and, and what the benefits and uh, drawbacks to doing that would be. So my favorite case in IP was this case called uh, Thompson versus Larson. And it was a case that it, it involves how we determine whether someone is a co-author or not in a creative work. And um, this case interested me not only for just basically the content and the law that it covered, but also because it had to do with the musical Rent, which um, around my house, it's a very, it's like the number two musical of all time, Hamilton being the, <laughs> now the number one musical of all time. But anyway, in, in this case, a dramaturg, um, who, who a, a dramaturg is basically sort of like an editor of a play before it goes live. Um, this dramaturg, claimed that she was the co-author of Rent because she had contributed a lot to the script and the staging, and it, the play was very different because of her uh, involvement. But when she went to be a co-author, the court said no. And the reason was because of, well, it's a, it's a long list of reasons, but uh, this case was good for me to to read in terms of better understanding the nuances of co-writing and the sorts of considerations and concerns that happen, whether you know about them or not, uh, when a band or a group of uh, musicians writes together. So that, that was really good for me to, to experience that. So at the end of last semester, I met with my faculty advisor to see how, you know, making sure I was getting all the courses I needed. And she pointed out to me, she said, um, you need an, an upper level writing course. And I thought, wait, I already took a, you know, this jurisprudence class. And she's like, no, that's that, that one doesn't qualify. And, and she explained to me why. So, um, I had to take sort of a it's called a lawyer three class and it, lawyer stands for legal analysis, writing and research. And so the level three class is a second year course. It's different from the four, you know, it's, it's all complicated, but long story short, I had to take a class. And when I found out about this, the, the business drafting and public 
interest drafting courses were already full. So I just, you know, what was left was criminal litigation drafting. So I said, well, I'm going to have an open mind about this and I'm going to, I'm going to give it a try. So, you know, criminal law is not what I really want to practice, uh, but this class was so great. I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. And um, <laughs> this course was was good because it gave me an experience of writing documents for uh, for court. And that's something where, you know, I don't envision myself being on the front line of that. But um, what was cool about the course was it was it was taught by one of the most successful criminal defense appellate attorney, attorneys that are that's currently practicing in North Carolina. And it it was not uncommon for us to read a case about an issue uh, and then look to see who the appellee was represented by, and it would be our professor. It's like, whoa. Um, so that, that was really amazing that he, he not only knew how to draft the documents, but he drafted the document, <laughs> documents for a lot of the important cases. But th- this case involved drafting two 10-page litigation documents. And we also had an oral argument in front of a real judge. So that was very practical. Um, we wrote what was called a motion to suppress and a motion in limine. And those two things are very related. They're kind of like kissing cousins, but they're, they're, they're different in, two, in different ways. But, um, but they, they serve the same purpose. They, the, the object of them is to either keep evidence out of trial or introduce, make sure evidence gets into trial. So um, the or, oral argument was so fun. I mean, it was just great. I, I represented the state in, in sort of a moot setting. And uh, I was trying to have some expert witness testimony excluded from trial. And um, what I really liked about this course was it, it, it was an extension of some of the principles we learned in the evidence course. And in the evidence course, you know, there's so so much that goes on that you we, we really didn't have time to focus, say, you know, 10 page, 20 pages on just excluding expert testimony. So it was a good exercise, I think. And this course also had a number of guest speakers, um, including a current North Carolina Supreme Court uh, justice. That was that was great. I mean, just to be in that company and to ask questions of someone who's that well respected in that capacity. So that was good. So if you've looked around, um, you know that our world basically is a collection of corporations. And what um, the seminar course I took uh, was called Sustainable Corporations. And basically the, the premise of it is that the modern corporation is inherently unsustainable uh, because, well, it, it's a legal entity that its purpose is to maximize profits uh, for its shareholders, and then by default, uh, it eats away at everything around it. That is, unless it adopts what's called a sustainable structure. So this course looked at how this concept of putting the shareholder first, or shareholder primacy as it's called, erodes the fabric of the environment and erodes uh, social justice. So after we identified the problem, the course addressed several varieties of possible solutions. I mean, it was really neat because 
basically the mantra of the course is we don't really know what the sustainable corporation is, but we're going to explore it and explore different ideas. So um, we studied a concept first called the triple bottom line, which is something I attached to right away. But it's basically a method of accounting that reports on profits, people, and planet equally. Um, it's kind of a cool idea. But then we also looked at a radically redefined corporate structure like the B Corp, the Benefit Corporation, which allows, well, it, it basically allows a corporation to exist for a purpose other than making profits. And there's something called a 3LC, which is um, different. Uh, but then we had also addressed the very nature of corporate morality. Can Does the corporate have a, a corporation have a corporate center, I mean, a moral center? And that opened a whole bunch of uh, a whole can of worms, and it was just a lot of fun to to engage in that. But this course was also an online course with group assignments. Um, so, you know, the readings were were pretty challenging and, and diverse. Um, I got to say that the jurisprudence course I took last semester helped me immensely in in directing the problem of morality. Uh, in the corporation sort of for myself as I navigated it. Um, you know, for one, the corporation makes these collective choices, but it also lacks any sort of identifiable conscience. Well, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But um, so how, you know, how do you express the morality of a corporation that's not a living, breathing thing, that doesn't have a quote-unquote soul? And so, you know, what I did was I went back to uh, Aristotle's empirical assessment of of, of morality and, and sort of arrived at what I would consider to be the moral corporate choice, and that would be the decision that allows society to thrive. And, you know, jurisprudence allowed me to keep a 10,000-foot view on the problem, but also helped me select what I think was the correct 10,000-foot view. But this was a, a paper course that required drafting a, a 10 to 12 page study of some aspect of the sustainable corporation. And one of our readings pointed to the genesis of what's called shareholder primacy, um, which I talked about already. But it's basically the idea that the corporation has to cater to its shareholders. And um, a few scholars point out that the reason shareholder primacy is so prevalent is because that that's what students are learning, you know, in business school and in law school. And this in turn raised the question in me, well, exactly what are the business schools teaching about sustainability? So I went out on an errand, a rather long errand, uh, to find out, well, what are business schools teaching uh, regarding the triple bottom line and sustainability? And interestingly, sustainability its not really being taught in the business schools. It sort of has this presence of being a initiative. And that means, you know, one school put it this way, that it, it sort of ends up being sort of like a saddlebag to a horse. It's sort of an ornament. It doesn't change the nature of the horse. It's just there. But anyway, uh, securities regulation explores the statutory and regulatory response to the stock market crash of 1929. It goes way back to, to that. And, um, but the idea was that in order to protect the unsuspecting buyer, you know, Congress passed what was called the Securities Act of 1933 and the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. 
in the late 1920s, what would ha- what was going on was the brokers would sell stock on on the margin, which is basically you borrow the money to buy the stock directly from the broker for you know up to like 90 percent of the price, and then you would collateralize the loan with the stock itself. <laughs> it's a bad idea. So uh, the the problem with with margin investing is it it basically forms a very fragile house of cards that can and eventually does catastrophically collapse. And that's what happened basically uh, in a very oversimplified sense in 1929 with the stock market crash. Um, So the solution that that Congress came up with and one that is still used today uh, is that someone who issues a security, a company that wants to issue stocks or or bonds or whatever it's, it's selling, it can't offer to sell sell or distribute marketing materials unless that security is registered with the government, the SEC. And so the registration process itself is very complicated, as you would imagine. It's also very expensive. Um, And liability regarding issuing a security is like a minefield. You wouldn't want to walk there uh, without, you know, a whole bunch of Kevlar um, and one false step, and the entire issue is spoiled, and a lot of folks are upset. So anyway, uh, with all these restrictions, if you issue uh, the security properly, you can be exempt under the Exchange Act or Securities Act. And the role of the securities lawyer is to counsel the issuer, the underwriter, and the dealer, or either uh, all of them or none of them, um, such that the sale of the security is going to fall into one of the exemptions that will save money and be more efficient. So this class was also an online class. Uh, The professor had this WebEx classroom, that's what it was called. It was basically online. We would log in on Monday and Wednesday afternoons. We would have an hour lecture, and then we would break out into small groups and answer uh, multiple choice questions that posed hypotheticals based on the material that was covered in the lecture. So the the professor believes, and I agree, that the only way to teach a concept like securities regulation is to to work through the problems in groups. And I I, I didn't, I I wasn't skeptical of it, but I kind of had an open mind about it. But after our group got done with our 20 or so questions, after the lecture, we all understood it better, I think. Um, so the funnest part of this class was that we each got to com- complete scavenger hunts <laughs> where we, w- we would read these securities documents. And, you know, we examined the Netflix uh, in initial public offering or IPO, as it's called. Um, we also looked at a crowdfunding document from a three-wheeled car company. Um and so before this class, honestly, I didn't even know what a security was. And But we learned that, you know, security or issuing um, sort of an investment where you're relying on the works of others and there's a common enterprise. Um, it, the idea is much broader uh, than basically, you know, it's just a stock or a bond. And, you know... A security occurs whenever someone invests his money in a common enterprise and is led to expect profits based on someone else's effort. So that can be anything. And, and 
the one of the cool cases we read uh, was called SEC versus Howie, where what happened was a landowner he sold strips of land uh, of orange trees, orange groves, to several people from different states, where he would manage the crops and then he would distribute the profits. And you know, the Supreme Court looked at it and said, "Well, that that's a security. That's what that is. Even though you're selling land." Um, that's what it is, and it's subject to regulation. So, uh, you know, the nuances of these exemptions were many, and all of them have these really cool, like, lingo, like, Reg D is Regulation D, and, you know, the Section 5 exceptions are called gun-jumping rules. They have these really cool, con- you know, words that, you know, but I'll say nothing clears out a room faster <laughs> than throwing these these terms around. I mean, Except maybe if I were to start talking about the merits of episode one, Star Wars, you know, I'm guilty of both uh, during dinner conversations. So I extend my sincere apologies um, to you for that. But, you know, the, the funnest part of, of the 33 Act, and this is a real thing, um, th- there's, <laughs> there's all these exemptions. They have these cool numbers, but coming along towards the end of the course, and there's something called the 4A one and a half exemption, and the professor called it the Harry Potter exemption, sort of the platform nine three quarters to Hogwarts. And this is a real thing. Um, what happens is you, you'll have this exemption that's triggered when you have sort of an exempt transaction through one part of the statute, Section 4A1, where you have like a private placement, but then it's resold without being distributed like in 4A2. So it's sort of in between those, 4A1 and a half, pretty clever. Um, but anyway, they tried to codify it in 4A7 and Rule 144A, but it's not as fun as the 4A1 and a half exemption. So Albert Einstein once said, that the hardest thing in the world to understand is the income tax. Well, he must not have taken income tax at Wake Law because I feel like income tax is much more straightforward than the theory of special relativity. Um, But, you know, there was a time in my life where income tax was this mysterious, frightening thing, you know, and, and, and by time in my life, I mean from the time when I started paying income tax at the age of 18 until the day before I st- started taking this class, uh, federal income tax. So in, in its most simplified sense, the federal government uh, taxes someone when he or she has what's called gross income. Gross income is any time a taxpayer has an ascension to wealth, clearly realized in control of the taxpayer. This is something that was drilled into us, which I'm glad it was. Um you know, of course, there are exclusions and exceptions. Uh, but then, you know, the taxpayer has a number of deductions which yield, you know, taxable income. It, you know, it's all it's all pretty standard stuff. Um, but then you, you feed this number into a rate table to produce the tentative tax, and then you have credits like anything you've already paid or child credits, and that is applied to produce the tax that you pay. That's the tax ladder. That's what we learned. Um, but all of the professors at Wake are top-notch. This is, this is known information, but the particular professor who taught federal income tax won the best teacher award for this school year. Um, you know, and, and federal income tax ends up being a lot of people's favorite class because of how clearly she teaches it and how useful the knowledge is in, in just practical life. Um, 
but unique to our class, this was really cool, was that um, at the end of last year, the new tax code went into effect, and that's called the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which it, it just ta- it did away with the whole variety of things. Um, but, you know, we were the first class to learn this new code, which is super cool. Um, but really, you know, with the personal income tax side of things, only a couple front-end things were changed. Uh, but basically, most of it is the same. You know, tax cases are more lively and engaging than you might think. You know, every case has a story. Um, <laughs> one of the really cool cases involved these two businessmen, and one was interested in obtaining the other businessman's customer list so he quote gave end quote a Cadillac to him as a quote gift (laughs) and because the car was given without a detached interest he wanted the customer list in exchange the court held that the caddy was gross income to the recipient the poor guy who already had like three Cadillacs Um, but you know what we learned from that was that anytime someone gives a gift in it in the sort of business context, it's pretty much just like receiving money. So I also had an opportunity to complete an independent study this past semester. I hadn't done one of these since undergrad, like in the 90s. But anyway, uh, this independent study was pretty cool. So the the business law chair uh, proposed a study where a student could observe a case or cases in the business court which, you know, there's one of the North Carolina business courts is literally located on the third floor of the school. So it's like right there. Um, But then what you would do is write a 10 to 14 page single spaced reflection on, on what you observed. And I thought this would be interesting for a number of reasons, but most important of which is that uh, this summer I'll be an intern at that very business court and another one in Charlotte. And I wanted to get familiar with business court filings and just sort of understand just some of the dynamics of what goes on in a case. So I didn't feel like a deer in headlights on the first day. Um, but the North Carolina business court is really, really cool. And in the study, what I found was that, you know, the reason it's there is it, it grew out of a desire for the state of North Carolina to have something more like what Delaware has. And Delaware has this chancery court which is sort of the the bellwether court for emerging business issues, mainly with big corporations, but, but business issues. Uh, so in North Carolina, uh, what happens typically is that a district court judge will rotate through different counties over a certain time period. And because business court, business litigation can be complex uh, and the disputes will take often over a year to resolve, what used to happen was the case would have several different judges assigned to it. And so what the business court does is it assigns one judge to a given case. And that way, you know, the it's more consistent throughout the life of the case. And uh, the, the business court judge is also specialized in hearing business issues. Um, so as a result, and over time, uh, with the establishment of this court, uh, we have a body of case precedent that helps predict outcomes, so therefore it's much more efficient to 
have your case brought there if it qualifies. So in, anyway, the case I looked at was involved a dispute within a ball bearings company, and um, it was just fascinating. But um, I won't go into details because it's quite long, and um, I want to talk about something else. Um, so you know when I when I drive to school, um, it, it's about a fifty minute door to door. What used to be now that they open the new loop. Um, it's about 45 minutes door to door. But anyway, I spent a lot of time in the car and a lot of that time this past semester, I, I just listened to audiobooks, And this was a great way for me to sort of decompress after school, but also like before school, just to have some entertainment in the morning, uh, before hitting the book. So, um, I got to listen to so many great books this semester. Last semester, I enjoyed uh, a book by Joe Hill called Stranger Weather. It was a novella collection. So I decided I wanted to jump into one of his longer novels, and I, I listened to Nosferatu, which is, I think, was, it's got to be his most critically acclaimed novel because it was so good. But, you know, I would rank this up there with some of his father's best novels. And, and Joe Hill is, of course, the son of Stephen King. And, you know, I loved when, when Hill would make these great references and allusions to different aspects of not only his father's work, but just some of the the zeitgeist of literature that's cool, like the Pennywise Circus or the Cloud Atlas Sextet. Anyway, it, it put the, the novel in this larger world of fiction. And, you know, Nosferatu by Joe Hill is the scariest Christmas story ever told, bar none. Um, but I like Nosferatu so much that I decided to jump right into another book by Joe Hill called The Fireman, which it was critically acclaimed. But here, you know, I, I didn't like this as much for, for some reason. It wasn't the premise. The premise was cool. It was that global warming had released a virus that caused people to spontaneously combust. Kind of neat. Um, I think the thing that didn't work for me was it had this sort of holy roller cult part to it that I don't know I'm just not into that <laughs> but anyway um it was also the book seemed a little long for what it was but you know I think it was still entertaining I made it to the end and um but anyway that was what it was but after that I, I wanted to to go a little deeper into some some sort of quote-unquote literature and, and get some some culture um so you know, anytime I've listened to a Man Booker Award audiobook, I've never been disappointed. And uh, gosh, this book, A Brief History of Seven Killings by Marlon James, was amazing. It was such a good book. It was this visceral, explosive, and very original, very original work set in uh, the late 70s in Jamaica. And it centers around... Bob Marley, believe it or not, who's only called the singer in the book, and the Jamaican political regimes around that time. And the entire work is told from different first-person narrators, and all of them are completely unreliable. So it's just a lot of fun in that regard. But the book is also not for the faint of heart or the easily offended. I mean, it was pretty rough, guys. I mean, uh, very dark side of human nature, but I think it was worth exploring and, and understanding. So 
hats off to Mr. James for an amazing book. Um, but after that, the book was so heavy that I had to go much lighter for the next book I read. And um, so I checked out The <laughs> Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. It's very quick, very funny, very good remedy uh, to that. But, you know, the, it, the novel was so short by comparison that I just went ahead into the, the next one in the series, The Restaurant at the End of the Universe, and that was a lot of fun, too. But in between those two novels, gosh, I listened to a lot of a lot of books this semester. Um, I checked out Paul Auster's New York trilogy, which was that's a really strange experience. Um, it's a collection of three novellas that you know on the surface they they look like and they feel like they're going to be sort of this hard boiled detective novel stories, but they go into these really weird metaphysical places that are so hard to describe that I won't even try here, but very entertaining, uh, very, gosh, totally unique as well. No semester recap is complete with, without a cataloging of my musical obsessions of, of, the, of the time period. Um, so, you know, around mid-March, there was this collection of music I had been eyeing for a long time. I couldn't find it, uh, but I saw that it was going to be released on iTunes. And this is uh, Kip Winger, his solo albums. He, he had put out a box set of his four solo albums. Um, and these came out between the third Winger album, Pull, and sort of the relaunch, Winger 4, that happened in 2006. And, you know, these solo albums are what I would describe as pretty AAA adult contemporary rock. Reminds me a lot of Sting sometimes. <laughs> but um, it, some of the, it also has some of the ballads from the early Winger albums. But you know, this collection also included um, a solo record called Down Incognito, which is a collection of mostly Winger ballads done acoustically. And it, it's pretty amazing to hear sort of these hair metal ballads done almost almost in a Counting Crows style, but much darker. Um, you know, I've never understood. There's sort of this weird, haughty derision that goes into... Some Some people just don't like Winger. I don't understand, <laughs> understand it, but anyway. Uh, the Kip Winger box set kept me entertained. Um, but anyway, backing up, uh, around January... Um, I finally got around to listening to and checking out the Master of Puppets re remaster. And this sounded so good that, you know, I fell into back into listening to the entire Metallica catalog for most of the first half of the semester. And, you know, I think, oh gosh, I'm such a fan of, of Metallica, but if you divide, uh, you can divide the catalog into five periods, I think. There's this... Kill 'em all post Dave Mustaine period where they were all but an independent band. I mean, there's a lot of really innovative, new, fresh ideas that weren't being colored by any sort of commercialism. But then you get into the the next phase, which is sort of a prog rock metal trilogy of records: Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets, and and Justice for All. And these these albums feature very long, epic songs, like eight or nine minute songs, and each record 
they have they have parallel pacing where like the fourth track on the album is always the ballad and and whatnot. Um, but then you know with Injustice for All you have sort of a it's a bit of an outlier because it has no bass guitar on it. The bass guitar player Cliff Burton uh unfortunately was thrown out of a window on a tour bus in Europe and died um so what the band did was they just recorded as a three piece now they they said they had Newstead on board but the bass is mixed very very low um and if if I had a, a wish three wishes one of them would be to hear a remix of that record but anyway so after that, there's the commercial period, um, which features the infamous Black Album, uh, and then the companion albums, Load and Reload. Um, take those for whatever they are. They're all great. Uh, and then there's this reinvention period, which I, I would call, it, it, there's a singularity, St. Anger, and this record is often maligned. Um, but what I like about it is that it has a sense of rediscovery and creativity that you really ne- you never hear in the band. Like uh, you you never hear in a band of that stature. Period. Uh, usually these ideas get nixed, and they say no, this is not going to sell records. And they went through with it, which is uh, remarkable. Um, and you know, a lot of the songs rock pretty good. You know, so whatever. Um, but anyway, the, then there's this the legacy period where the band is now, and here what I find Metallica is doing and they have done since death magnetic and with, um, hardwired to self-destruct. You have the band doing and being and existing in a mode that they're comfortable with and that they do well in. And by that, I mean, death magnetic has a lot of what really worked in the injustice for all period. Hardwired, to self-destruct draws on what worked well in Master of Puppets and the Black Album. So anyway, I like listening to Metallica because each record is sort of like this old friend and each record has a a time stamp on it. And when I listen to that particular record, I'm transported back to a happy time in my life. And, you know, like when I'm listening to Injustice for All, I'm in the eighth grade again, riding on the back of the bus, pouring over the guitar tabs for the record, learning how to play guitar for the first time. So such a good experience, and I'm glad that the band arrived on my laptop <laughs> this semester. But um, anyway, one one Sunday, uh, late morning, I was driving to Burger Spot with my kids, and we were listening to to the local rock station and you know, the kids like to listen to music and in the car and, and Hey You from Pink Floyd's The Wall came on and you know I hadn't listened to the song in a while and you know on that song I think David Gilmore and, and Roger Waters they deliver the two of their best vocal performances in the entire uh catalog on on that one song it's amazing um but, you know, that song, when I listened to it, for some reason I went back and remembered that I had borrowed this collection called Echoes. It was a compilation of Pink Floyd songs that were sequenced sort of in crossfade, so it's like one big song. It's such a cool experience. Um, I was like, man, I want to hear that again. So that started this month-long foray into Pink Floyd and is 
obviously why I started the show with a reference to Pink Floyd. But um, so, you know, I really enjoyed getting into that collection. And then I also found myself, gosh, you know, I didn't have the remasters of The Wall or Animals. And so I started exploring those remasters. And it, I got to say the 2011 versions of the records are fantastic. And I'm kicking myself for not listening to them sooner. But then I ended everything off with um, the en Endless River, the posthumous Pink Floyd collection um, that uh, came out recently. But it's just a great, great band. So I'm not sure how my brain works, but somewhere out of Pink Floyd, I stumbled <laughs> into listening to Rob Zombie a lot. I don't know what <laughs> what happened, but anyway, if you haven't heard Rob Zombie, he's this sort of post-metal, super-industrial, ogre-sounding guy, you know, and he, um, but anyway, he kept me awake on the commutes uh, when I was getting tired, so um, it's weird because, you know, I, I've had the song Dragula and the song uh, More Human Than Human on my workout playlist for, for almost a decade, like, I just think those are great, upbeat songs to exercise to, but, um, you know, for whatever reason, I was scrolling through iTunes one morning and, and I had the collection of Rob Zombie's, you know, sort of the first half of his career. And I said, you know, let me check out more of his stuff and just started really liking it. And um, so, you know, I downloaded the remainder of the Rob Zombie, White Zombie songs. And, um, you know, I think what caused me to go deeper into his music was a lot of his songs have this sort of theatrical thing to them and, and they, they lend themselves to the full album format. So when I was listening to the compilation of, of his career perspective, retrospective, I went, man, I gotta, gotta hear the context for this. So, you know, I went in to listen to Astro Creep 2000 then Hellbilly Deluxe and then just about everything. I was, I was hooked. Um, but, you know, what really surprised me was his latest two works um, were just really energetic and su surprisingly good for uh, a late period, um, late, late period albums. And you know, looking at the, the credits, he's got both John Five and Ginger Fish from Marilyn Manson's touring band from the late 90s. So, I mean, he's got the band. And, you know, Rob Zombie's this... this performer who stays in character and, and it's weird his, his music has this sort of nightmare before christmas jack skellington feel it's this exaggerated halloween but very comic book cartoon at the same time and you know he, he almost always samples dialogue from old horror films and sci-fi movies so i, I kind of felt like i was in a halloween cartoon during, <laughs> during exams but anyway that was that so one thing that was really different about this semester from the other three was that I played out a lot. Um, and by a lot, you know, in, in law school parlance, that means more than twice. <laughs> so, <laughs> but um, anyway, this semester presented sort of an odd and diverse collection of shows. And they were all very different, but they were all very good and, and satisfying. So the first one I played, I, you know, I didn't play till like April 5th. So this was towards the end of the semester. It was a Thursday night. And um, I played the annual Pilo auction show that I offer 
for one of the school's fundraiser. And PILO stands for Public Interest Law Organization. I think that's what it means. But anyway, so I set this minimum and the students bid and the high bid wins and I go and I play a show, you know, and it's kind of just like any other show I would play at a, at a house, um, house concert, done them for years. But so this year, the student who won the show asked me to play a birthday party for a classmate. And so that's what happened. I set up in a corner of a living room at, you know, a law student house and played for about two hours, just, just covers. It wasn't anything. Well, actually, uh, my friend Ralph said, you got to play automatic. So I played, you know, a collapses song, but what was really cool and, and odd and fun about this show is that, you know, as I was play, playing, these classmates of mine that I only see in professional settings just kept showing up and showing up and showing up. There was a lot of people in this house, and it was just good to see them all cut loose a little bit, you know, in, in just a different setting. And they all sang along to Wonderwall and Motorcycle Drive-By, but it was a good night. Um, but this show was very different stark contrast to the Athenaeum 20th anniversary show, which celebrated Radiance. Um, and Radiance was, of course, the band's 1998 debut on Atlantic Records. And this show went down at the Ramcat in Winston-Salem. So it was two nights later, totally different. There were no people who were at both shows. I know that for a fact. But anyway, the, this show, it was a sold-out, sold-out show, 1,000 people. And um, this show was really special and really cool because it featured the original Athenaeum lineup, which a lot of people don't know is really a three-piece of Mark, Alex, and Nick. And I played the supporting role uh, by playing the extra guitar parts. So I was sort of the utility guy acting as I usually would. And really, the, the only main difference between this Athenaeum show and the previous Athenaeum shows that I had played was that everything was really focused on radiance and I didn't take any lead leads at all during the show, uh, vocally. Um, you know, we would usually do one or two of my songs, uh, in Athenaeum just for vocal break and just for texture. But, you know, instead of doing that, we subbed in the songs from radiance that we rarely would play. And we also did songs like haircut and banana and, you know, it was cool. But, you know, the thing about this show that that kind of upset me, but I was glad that it happened, was that uh, right in the middle of the second song, like, my rig went down. And, like, why does that happen? You know, <laughs> and I couldn't find the problem. So, you know, I took one of the suspect pedals out of the rig. I think it was the cable to the distortion pedal. Um. So anyway, we, we, we got back uh, on track, and so my tone was cleaner than I would have liked the whole night, and I, I just didn't get the grind that I wanted, but, you know, it got the job done. But what happened as a result of this show was that I, I came face-to-face with the reality that I needed to examine and hadn't examined in a long time was that I think it was time to update my guitar rig. So... You know, the rationale for this is far too expansive to, to get into here, but uh, I want to do a follow-up show on uh, why I've chosen to go digital for my guitar rig, for future band rigs, band gigs. But anyway, another story for another time. So <laughs> the following weekend, the next Saturday, 
totally different show. Uh, Wake Law had its first talent show in a while. And, you know, the talent show had been this long-standing tradition that, for whatever reason, had fallen by the wayside. Um, but this year it was back, and the event went down at a student's family's awesome folk stage out in the middle of an all-but-secluded area of Winston-Salem. It was really cool, just a really cool vibe. And it was nice, you know, he had students come up and play stuff, and it was no pressure. And um, I played five songs, and most other people played five songs. You know, it was great. Um, you know, I, I originally had thought about maybe playing a piano song that I'd written, but I just stuck to the guitar because it was comfortable. But, you know, I love playing surprise parties, too, for longtime fans. And so I did one of these as well. And on April 20th, um, I got to play a 50th birthday party for a longtime fan who'd been listening to my music since the early days of Collapsus. And, you know, I remember back to the 1998 G105 Big Shindig. And, you know, you don't forget moments like this when... You know, he, he and his family, they approached me after our set, and they wanted me to sign a T-shirt for his then five-year-old daughter. And she only, only listened to Collapses. So fast forward, you know, 20 years, and here I am seated at this upscale Mexican-American restaurant with this Mar Mardi Gras <laughs> mask on uh, with a guitar in my lap, and then... He arrived, and I started playing Collapse of Songs, but under the mask. And so a few songs into it, I think he figured out that I wasn't just a Collapse cover band, but I was the real guy singing his real songs. And, you know, his, his family was there, and it was just nice to reunite and reminisce about just how, how cool music is and can bring people together. So you know, I got to say, finally, the, the strangest show of all shows this semester was this <laughs> spring fling I played at the law school. And this totally reminded me, brought me back to when I was, I think, must have been 10 years old or 12 or whatever it was when I, I brought my guitar to school and I'd play a few songs for the class. <laughs> Except here I was at law school on the lawn um, and there was this bounce house and, a, and you could dunk the dean if you'd throw the ball at the target. So... The show was odd only because it featured music in a place where you usually don't have music. But, you know, I like that. I like that kind of show. So, you know, I've been working on uh, an EP, if you've been following these uh, scenes, Volume 3. It gave me uh, a good musical outlet during the down, down times of the semester. And um, I wrote all these songs back in 2014. So... I'm finding myself becoming less connected to them, but, you know, this collection of songs is coming along, and I anticipate it being out sometime this summer for your listening enjoyment. But, you know, when I think about the grand reflection of this semester, and I think that life has this rather blatant and formidable disregard for one's personal plans, and... You know, I end this semester in a totally different place than where I expected to be and nowhere <laughs> that I planned to be when I started. And 
I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that because I've been here so many times before, and I'll be here so many times again. And I've come to understand that life is a dynamic experience, and you know, nothing exists in a vacuum, and everything resolves, and everything jumps from cause to effect, and everything has a place. So, as I continue, um, I'll keep you up to date. But that was what happened this semester, and uh, thanks for listening. The Mike Garrigan Podcast is brought to you by MikeGarrigan.com.